Grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23, where we find ourselves in our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the Gospel of Luke. Now, Father, as we ready ourselves to take a look at this most sacred text, the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that the Holy Spirit open the eyes of our understanding. Certainly, you have truths to speak to our hearts and lives this very morning. That'll make a difference. So we wish to hear what your spirit is saying, understand it, and to have the courage to put it into practice. In Christ's name, amen. We've arrived at a rather sacred text. Of all texts in the word of God, this perhaps the most profound and sacred It is the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Passover time, Passover day, the 14th of the Jewish month of Nisan. And Jesus now typifying and fulfilling the role of the Passover lamb. This time uh, you can go ahead and put the Passover lamb picture up there. That can remain up there if you don't mind. When Jesus is introduced to Israel, when he's 30 years old, his cousin introduces him as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Now, Jesus is the Passover lamb, the fulfillment there on Passover. And just like the living Passover lambs of old had to be inspected for their perfection, according to Exodus chapter 12, Jesus too needs to be inspected that he would be a fitting and perfect, spotless lamb of God without fault or defect. And we saw that last week. Through a brutal legal proceeding that was all night long there with the Jewish high court, it revealed their corruption and false charges and Jesus' innocence all through through the night. At the first break of dawn, then, Jesus was sent by the Jewish high court, as we saw last week, to Pontius Pilate for his civic trial. Civil trial, I should say, his secular trial, where the Roman authorities under Pontius Pilate had the ability to pass the death sentence over him, to execute him. Pilate said, I find no basis for any charge against this man over and over again. He tried to release Jesus, but the Lamb of God, who takes takes away the sins of the world, must die. And he must die on Passover, was prophesied for hundreds of years before that God would send his only son into the world for you and for me to be a lamb, a sacrifice, innocent of any transgressions on his part so that he can pay for the transgressions, the sins, the lawlessness on your part. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Matthew tells us as we get to our context this morning that when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but rather a riot was starting, he took water 
and he washed his hands in front of everybody. And he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. This is your responsibility. Then he released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus whipped, flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Silly Pilate. Washing his hands, saying, well, you know what? I already told you about five or six times that he has done nothing worthy of death. I find no basis for any charge you have against him. And I'm washing my hands, and I'm doing the wrong thing, and so I'm off the hook. No, just because you admit and you know what I'm about to do is wrong. See, I'm even telling you beforehand that I do it. See, I'm clean. No, you're still responsible because you did the wrong thing, whether you know it or admit it beforehand or not. And so with that, he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Well, of course, the whole purpose of the Passover lamb. For 1,300 years, the Jews were celebrating. The Passover lamb has to die, so the blood goes on the door. The death angel comes. It didn't matter if you were Hebrew or Egyptian. You know, the firstborn was going to die because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All the firstborns were slated to die that night. The only ones who did not die were because a lamb had been slaughtered and the blood was put on their doorpost. That's the only reason death passed over them in the first place. So, of course, this man has to die as the Passover lamb. It is Passover. He said, I am the Lamb of God. The cross is the meal. My body, the bread. My, my blood, the wine. The whole Seder dinner comes together in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted because you were condemned. I'm alive because you died. That's the gospel. And so now the long road for the context now for our verse this morning, the long road of legal proceedings now is over, and it's time for a new road, the Via Dolorosa, from the Latin way of sorrows or road of sorrow to begin. We're going to walk that walk with Jesus. Luke only gives you a paragraph, and that's the paragraph we'll cover for this morning. We'll walk that half mile. It's a half mile. It's 0.4 of a mile. The Via Dolorosa. From Pilate's judgment seat called the Praetorian, from that place of judgment to Golgotha, Hebrew for the Latin word Calvaria, where we get the word Calvary, meaning place of the skull. Nobody knows whether it's because the mound looks like a skull, a human skull, or that it's just a typical skull and crossbones kind of image, a place of death. Nobody really knows for sure. But he goes to Calvary, which means skull. We like to kind of clean up and... Use euphemisms. This is called Calvary Chapel, the rock. Never forget why half the churches in the world call themselves Calvaries. It's because of what happened at Calvaria, 
Golgotha, the skull. So really, this is the chapel of the skull and crossbones. That's exactly what the gospel means, is, is that were it not for what happened at Calvary, we would all be in our sins and under the wrath and eternal judgment of God. Therefore, the skull we can sing about and we can be happy about it. Listen to this quote. Hideous yet beautiful. Something horrible yet wonderful. Something that makes us uncomfortable and yet fills the guilty soul with comfort and assurance. A demonstration of divine love. God is at work, reconciling the sinner to himself, destroying the power of the evil one, defeating the power of sin and death, and opening a door to eternal paradise. What a strange way to save the world. Luke 23, picking up now at verse 26, Pilate has condemned him to die. Verse 26, as they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, modern-day Libya, who was on his way from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and waited for him, wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are barren women, wombs that never bore and breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to mountains, Fall on us, and to hills, Cover us. Jesus is quoting from the book of Hosea, chapter 10, verse 8. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And that's going to be the portion of scripture upon which we reflect this morning. Now, as they make their way down the road, a Roman guard leads with a sign that's carried in front. And on that sign is the man's name and the crime he has committed, Jesus committed blasphemy, saying he is the king of the Jews. They call out the name and the crime along the way to the place of crucifixion. They usually don't take the shortest way to the Golgotha, so as many people as possible could see what happens when you threaten the Roman Empire. So on this road, 0.4 of a mile... Let's consider some things together and take them to heart. One, Jesus' suffering. Two, Simon's carrying. And three, the women weeping. They all have significance for us this morning. First of all, I want to point out Jesus as the suffering servant. Jesus' suffering certainly didn't begin here on the road to suffering. It started a lot earlier Jesus is prophesied, in I, the, specifically in the book of Isaiah, in four different sections as the suffering servant. Now, it was confusing because you had this prophesied Messiah, Savior, coming into the world promised in the Old Testament. We knew he was divine because Isaiah told us he will be called Wonderful Counselor, 
Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we knew the Savior would be divine. But there were also some troubling passages, Isaiah 40, 2, 49, 50, and 53, about this conquering Messiah who would suffer and die and become a sin offering in very clear language. One of those um, passages reads as follows. God says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. My righteous servant will justify many, and yet he will bear their sins. And so the coming of the Messiah has two phases, one to come and offer himself as a lamb to pay the price and entrance to eternal life, and provide a payment for the sins of the world, and opening a door that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But phase two, he does not come as a lamb to lay down his life, but a lion to judge the world in truth and righteousness. The Jews here are waiting for round two, phase two, They have skipped over the suffering servant part because who wants a Messiah who has to lay down and die? A mangled, tormented, weak, miserable, shameful, condemnable death. Nobody wanted that. And so he is the suffering servant. Jesus told Peter, put your sword away, man. How else would the scriptures be fulfilled? The scripture said, I got to suffer and die. I am the suffering servant. Listen, there's no other way. But I dare say this suffering servant, suffering, started a long time before he hit the pavement there. Leaving heaven as the second person of the Godhead through whom everything was created. Everything that exists, the Bible says, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, it's through Christ whether thrones or powers or this earth or the universe. He has created all things. John chapter 1, verse 3, and by his power, Jesus Christ, all things hold together. That's the person who becomes a baby who needs his diapers changed. I would think that that is the beginning of the suffering. A baby born where? In a palace? Excuse me, in a barn with smelly animals, laid in a manger, a feeding trough, because he's the bread of heaven to feed the world. And so fitting, he is in a trough to feed. The self-professed bread of heaven ends up in a feeder. That's the beginning of suffering. Raised in poverty with brothers who make fun of you with a family that doesn't believe Mary or anybody else. His brothers hated him. That's the beginning of suffering. He preaches one of his first sermons in Capernaum, where he's from, where he was raised. And they, after service, take him to throw him and kill him and murder him, his hometown folks. His mom and brothers show up to take control of him because they're telling everybody he's lost his mind. Please excuse him. Religious leaders calling him the devil, renouncing him, rejecting him, kicking people out of the synagogue who align themselves with Jesus. 
tempted by the devil for 40 days without food, having no place to lay his head. The maker of the universe has no place to go and sleep at night. Do not make the mistake to think that Jesus' suffering begins here. Jesus' suffering began a long time before. And just a little preface about the suffering that's happened some 12 hours now ago from this moment, because it'll explain why Simon has to help him carry the crossbar. In the garden, contemplating, 12 hours previous, contemplating the bearing of the sins of the world, sweat drops tinged with blood. Just the thought of bearing the sin of child molesters and murderers and rapists on his innocent soul. He bursts out blood, his suffering. All night long, the Jewish authorities interrogate him, punch him in the face, beat him, mock him, spit upon him. All night, without sleep, no water, no food, no medical intervention. Then, when the sun comes up, it's time for round two with Rome. And he goes off to Pilate, where he's beaten again under Herod, mocked again. And then what you forget about is Matthew Chapter 27 tells us that before all of this gets started and the road starts, a crown of thorns batted into his head, into his brow for the king. Now you remember thorns was a sign that the earth had been cursed. How fitting. Once again, everywhere you turn, every way you hold Jesus up in the Gospels and the cross, you will find another picture of redemption. Jesus becomes the curse. And upon his head, the symbol of man's sin that brought thorns, he will wear those and pay for the curse. And one day, this world will be liberated because he is paid with the curse upon his own brow. So yeah, he suffered all through the night. And all through the morning, it's only 8 o'clock in the morning. But one thing that Luke has left out, or he has mentioned briefly, that he has been scourged. The word means flogged. It's the dreaded flagellum whip. I don't have to go into the details. Every Easter, Good Friday time, you folks hear it through pastors' mouths and on the radio. Horrible, horrible scene where they um, leather whip tipped with shards of glass, lead, and bone to lacerate the back. Now, it says most men, only men could be flogged. And no women or Roman senators, only death penalty cases of men. Oftentimes they died before they could crucify them. Blood loss and shock. It was brutal. Therefore, Isaiah says, now, with everything I've just told you about that's happened for 12 hours, Isaiah says this, he was an appalling sight. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred behind, beyond human likeness. In other words, he didn't look human anymore. That 
is where we begin this morning's text. That will explain to you, my friend, why Simon is conscripted as the word that Rome would use, pat you on the shoulder and say, you do this. Jesus falls beneath the weight of the cross because of his suffering. His suffering didn't start on the way to suffering. The Via Dolorosa became, uh, was, had started a long time ago. Isaiah 50, verse 6. 700 years before he enters Mary's womb, the second person of the Godhead, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliating, from humiliation and spitting. I took a tour guide aside in Jerusalem, and I read her that passage and others about the Messiah. And I said, who are they talking about? Piercing hands, piercing feet, before there is such a thing as crucifixion. Who is this Messiah saying that he has to die this kind of death? Flogging on the back, piercing of hands and feet. Who is he? And she said, that's Israel. Israel's suffering. I said, how do you pull the beard out of Israel's face? How, how do you lash? How do you do that? Just explain to me how you put a nail through Israel's hands. Do you not see on Passover night, Passover day, he's calling himself the Passover lamb, and on Passover He's fulfilling all of your scriptures. Isaiah is not an Irishman. He's a Jew. He's a Hebrew for crying out loud. I'm not coming to you with secular Gentile writings. I'm talking about Isaiah. Here, here, chapter and verse. And so he is the suffering servant. Let me sum up this point with this scripture out of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, slave, suffering servant, having been made in human likeness, because he was God, he was made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The suffering servant, Jesus Christ. So by the time Friday at 8 a.m., he'll be on the cross at 9. He's not looking human. He needs some help. And God has put that job to Simon from Cyrene. Here's a paraphrase, starting point two now. Simon carries. The soldiers lead Jesus away, the crossbar placed upon his shoulders for him to carry. Jesus falls beneath its weight. The soldier grabs a spectator from the crowd and forces him to carry the cross for Jesus. So Jesus carries the cross at first by himself. They lead him away, but like all victims of crucifixion, he is forced to carry the wood upon which he would hang. Now, somebody should be saying uh, this, especially if you're a Jew, this sounds familiar. Would you turn to Genesis chapter 22, 2,000 years before Jesus shows up in Bethlehem? 
2,000 years before Bethlehem. Verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, here I am, he replied. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Moriah is the very place Jesus is walking. Same place. 2,000 years before. To the father, take your well-loved only son in this very place. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you early the next morning. Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about, underlining, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself, Isaac, carried the fire and the knife and the wood. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, the fire and wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Oh, the lamb's coming, Isaac. Abraham answered. Now, in the Hebrew, better placement with the King James. Here's what the Hebrew says. God will provide himself for the lamb, for the burnt offering. NIV just does it better colloquial English. God himself will provide. But it's worded to get the point. God is going to provide himself, the lamb. Abraham answered in that way. The two of them go on. When they reached the place God had told them about, the very place Jesus is headed, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, stop dress rehearsal. Dress rehearsal, my friend. I'm telling a story about a father and his only son and a certain hill. So that nobody is going to miss this. If you are a Jew who's ever read Genesis 22, you have no excuse because on the very same hill, the gospel is saying a father with an only son who carries his own wood to the place. And he doesn't say, and he does so without a word of complaining, Isaac does, because he's the perfect type of Christ. Now Jesus, the true Isaac, has laid down his life willingly. And so, when he's carrying the cross, the weight of a cross was about 300 pounds, but the victim only carried the crossbar, which weighed anywhere from 75 pounds to 125. When the victim carried the crossbar, he was usually stripped naked, and his hands were often tied to the wood. The upright beams of a cross are permanently fixed in a visible place outside the city walls beside a major road. 
it's likely that on many occasions that Jesus went in and out of the city where those poles were kept. Upon one of those poles, he would die. Now, Jesus is no longer able. He gets some help. It comes from an unsuspecting source. Simon from North Africa, from Libya, is there because some 1.5 million tourists and pilgrims have descended upon the region because of Passover. Now, he's on his way somewhere. He just got caught up in the crowd, the poor guy. This is not what Simon expected. And there he is. Now, there were Jews scattered all over the world. It's called the diaspora, the, the, the scattering of the Jews. And they would come back. And he did. And he is going to carry the cross for Jesus. Now, there were Jews There was a synagogue mentioned in Acts chapter 6. A synagogue, a Cyrenian Jews synagogue. This is what he's all about. In fact, this is going to impact his life so much that he will have two boys who are famous disciples. Rufus, and there's another one. And I'll get to that wherever I put it. But it's impacted his life. And so, you know... Here he is, a guy who gets conscripted on the other end of a pointed javelin. You! And out of all those people in the crowd, it falls to Simon to help bear the cross of our Lord and Savior. Jesus fights to put one foot in front of the other. Simon is humiliated. He is irritated and unhappily bears the crossbar for the condemned criminal. You know, we think, oh, what an honor. I would, oh, if only, if only I could have been the one to get a little of Jesus' own blood on my shoulder, on my back. I mean, to, 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 to help alleviate the Son of God. What, what an honor, but no. It's not like carrying Arnold Palmer's golf clubs for him, as we would think of an honorable thing, Simon, to carry the cross of Christ. Oh, this guy's like this condemned murderer with chance to crucify him. And I got to get involved and get some of that blood on me? At first, no doubt, Simon is not a happy camper at all. He didn't have that in mind, nor did his disciples. Now listen to this. Jesus already said some months ago in Luke chapter 9, guys, I just want you to know, if anybody wants to be my disciple... You need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. He's already started to make, listen to me, the cross of Christ, the ugliest crucifixion in the world, will become the symbol of Christianity. And he will say, if you're not willing to do this picture that you have in your heads and the scene before you, then you are not worthy to be called my disciple. In fact, this is the only way out. You will pick up your cross, and this picture of Simon carrying behind Jesus is a picture of any would-be Christian. Simon is you. Simon is me. And if not, you're not going to heaven. As Jesus said, there is no other way. If you want to follow me, you must A, deny self, B, pick up cross, 
and follow right behind me, and let me show you what that looks like. Simon. And dragging a bloody crossbar behind the Lord, stumbling out of this world into the risen world to come. That is the way that Christians are born again. You think the whole symbol of baptism is about. When you come to know the Lord, you're saying, hey, let me just show you a picture of what just happened to me. I died. My old life, my sinful nature, gone, dead, buried, covered over. I identify with the cross. It's not just Jesus dying there. I'm dying with him, and I am buried in my sins and my old life, my old passions, my agenda. Gone, covered, buried, washed away, and I'm raised up as Christ will be raised. Crucifixion will become our method of life and a lifestyle. Listen to Paul. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. This picture of Simon carrying the cross is meant to take in to the heart of all Christians. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. The way out of lust and greed and gossiping and envy and slandering. The way out is not to reform yourself, but it's a death to that. And he says you need to execute it. And he uses the word crucify. That's Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, note takers. In Galatians 2, 20, I, Paul says proudly, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20. Is that your cry? If it's not your cry, you need to doubt whether or not you're saved. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Set your mind on heaven, for you have died. So Simon is us, and anybody hopes to be saved. You know, you don't go in that first and try to earn your way to heaven. No, because you've met the living God and you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in him, then naturally that is what follows. What follows is a identifying with Christ on the cross Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul is saying, look, I hung on that cross with him. What the world's got for me, it's no good to me because I died with Christ on the cross. I don't care about praise of men, popularity, fame, money, sex. Don't care. You can't tempt a dead person. You really can't. And that's what he says. Consider yourselves dead to sin. And if you did, you'd have the power to do it. You step out in faith. Well, I can't. How do I consider myself dead to sin? Well, you play dead. He says, if you play dead, I will give you the power behind that. And you will not satisfy the lusts of the sinful nature if you walk in the spirit. And put the misdeeds, I'm quoting the Bible, If you put the misdeeds of the body 
to death. Romans chapter 8. This Simon thing's hang out there. It's only like a verse or two, but it's your life. And the thing that the devil likes to forget to tell us is that at the end of that struggle comes the third day when you're raised to life in the newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. After we identify with the death of Christ on our behalf, we are raised by the Father to new life. The way to have blessing and joy and peace and a clean conscience, the way to make your life work, is first not to for, don't forego this part. You want the resurrection, you want the life, you want heaven. But he says, number one, deny sinful self, pick up cross, instrument of death, put those bad boy things to death. Or you will have no hope at all. None. Zero. To make way for the new life, you got to kill the old. The old man is reckoned dead. Or you will not enjoy the fruit of the new man, the new life. So, I started thinking. I saw that picture in my mind of Simon dragging the cross. And I thought, oh. What a, I wish. I, 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 I would love to have been Simon. What an honor. And the real blood, I know the blood is applied in my soul, but the real true living blood, whether it was A or O or whatever it was, AB, the real blood that flowed inside the God man, touching me, on me. He's probably thinking, how am I ever going to get this blood of this criminal off me? I've got to burn these clothes. But me, oh, oh man, what I would have done to be there. And as I'm thinking this, the Lord said, you could do it now. Every time you say no to yourself, you bear my cross. Every time you deny yourself a little gossip or a little lust or a little greed, every time you receive a little bit of an owie or a big owie because of the kingdom of heaven. You have helped me. Every time somebody says, you idiot, you're a Christian. Oh, yeah, no, I got a big boat and all the animals went on the big boat. <laughs> he says, oh, there you go. You got a little of that humiliation. You're identifying with me because they made fun of me as well. They persecuted me as well. When they persecute you for my name's sake, it shows that you are genuinely connected to me. Bingo. Rejoice. Dance. Celebrate. You got the real thing. You got the real thing. When I obey him instead of my own thing, when I put others ahead of me, when I do the task no one else wants to do, when I lose a friend because I don't want to compromise, when I'm mocked for my belief in the Lord, when I forego pleasure out of reverence for God, when I forgive instead of hate, when I hold my tongue and swallow my pride, when I think you're more important than me, ways to say, Jesus, I pick up my cross and share with you. I was sitting at a restaurant reading my Bible. And a guy was watching me, 
He came up to me and grabbed me with a scruff and hauled back with his fist many years ago and said, you Christians and that Bible and a fist. And I was like, wow, I'm about to get beat up. (laughs) I saw it coming in slow motion. I just thought, I'm going to lose some teeth here. Total, ready to hit me. And it was like, "Uh, do you want to know my name? I mean, (laughs) no, I had a name. It was Christian. And it was associated with the book, the Biblos in Greek, the book. That's what it means in Greek, the Bible. It's going to let me have one. I felt so honored. <laughs> wow. I'm not even doing anything, and I, I, I'm picking up a little bit of the cross. Listen, I told you this before. I was at Fort Funston in San Francisco, about three miles from where we lived, and the hang gliders jump off the cliff there with their hang glider on. And I take the kids, they're just little things, four, six, and eight, and Rosie, our dog, and we watch them. And I get really close, right up, talking to them as they step to the cliff. And I was just fascinated. How could you do that? He goes, ah, I'm talking to the guy, and he's carrying the thing on his shoulders, right? I've mentioned this before. I love this story. And he's got the crossbar on it, and he's walking with the crossbar, and he's dragging it. And I said, <laughs> I'm a Christian. I can't help thinking of carrying the cross when you're carrying that cross. It looks heavy. He says, yeah, it is heavy. And then he says, at first it seems like you're carrying this heavy thing. And then suddenly I realize it's carrying me once I step off. And I said, you know, I'm going to use that. I hope you don't mind. And I have for 15 years. I love that. Yeah, oh, no, I can't do it. And then, boom, sore. <laughs> nice. Nice. Listen, my friend, you want the soaring part? You got to have this part. You got to have this part. And then you will fly the Holy Spirit, dove, wings. It will be beautiful. Stop trying to jump without the cross. <laughs> You're going to be in trouble. <laughs> Weave! <laughs> All right, the women, are, they're a little confusing because Jesus seems a little rude. So let's just uh, read that, and then I'll comment on it, and then we'll be done. Here's a paraphrase. Included in the crowd following Jesus were women mourning, beating their chests and wailing. Jesus stops, turns. There's a hush. Jesus speaks. It's not me you should cry for, but your own lives. Dark days ahead. Like Hosea warned, women without kids will be glad, and death will be preferable than life. And then he he speaks a proverb, and I'll, I'll tell you what that means in a bit. In a nutshell, here's what he's saying. Jesus wants their repentance, not their sympathy. Now, it was kind of customary tradition for the Jewish moms to kind of gather on that via Dolorosa. It's a common occurrence to have men crucified. And they would come out, and they saw Jesus, such a nice young man, 
battered and mauled, like through a meat grinder. And they're weeping and wailing and tearing their clothes. And Jesus says, please, ladies, ladies, stop. Listen, Jesus is warning about a future judgment so horrible that it would reverse all nature's normal desires and values. Childlessness would seem like the happiest thing, and death, something good. Now, he's telling them, There are consequences to killing the Son of God. And I've warned the Jews and the disciples that it will be akin to the end of the world for Jerusalem in just about 30 or 40 years from then. Thank you for the tears, but are you out of harm's way? I'm paying the price here to protect the world You need not worry about me. What about your kids at home? What about you? Here's the idea, and I get it, and I use the logic, too. Somebody came up to me, a dad, non-believer, said, I love what this church has meant for my son. His life has totally changed. He really needed it. Thank you. And I said, without being too rude, (laughs) I said, I'm glad, and you're welcome, but what about you? Oh, not me. Oh, that's not, I don't need anything like that. (laughs) But I'm glad. I'm so happy for him. If I had a dime. For every time somebody in 31 years has told me, I'm so happy. And then dot, 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 for you. And then I always say, every single time I can, it doesn't matter if you're happy for your kid. What about your soul? Thank you very much. Now, can we talk about the issue of the gospel and Jesus Christ returning and heaven and hell and you? Oh, I'm so happy. Jesus was such a good man. What about you, sir? Oh, I saw the passion of the Christ, and I cried like a baby. Are you saved? Uh, Well, I'm not a religious person. Okay, you know what? Save the tears. Repent. What does it matter if you cry or you say nice things about Jesus? Oh, people think all the time, if I just admire him, I'm not against him. He says, if you're not with me, you're against me. He who doesn't gather with me scatters. You're my enemy by playing neutral and saying nice things, but not bowing your heart. That's what he's saying to these ladies. Ladies, please, save the tears. I'm making a way out for people. But 30 years, not one brick will be left upon another, not one stone. In AD 70, Vespian's kid, Titus, comes in, And in what mimics the end of the world. Because in Matthew 24, Jesus describes the judgment coming for what they did to him upon Jerusalem. And he mixes it with the end of the world, Armageddon. That's how bad. It's a mini Armageddon. In a nutshell, in a little Jerusalem. Christian communities fled from Jerusalem. There is not one record of any Christian Jew perishing. 
one million secular Jews were slaughtered. That place was destroyed. The believing Jews left the secular Jews. So what is Jesus saying? Take my words to heart. Do not be in Jerusalem when you see the signs. And he quotes Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. He's not saying, oh, don't worry, ladies, you're all going to get wiped out. He's saying, man, let this scene move you to do something about your own soul and the souls of your children. That's what it means. And then he closes with this. If men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Here's a paraphrase. If this is how the innocent son of God is treated, what will happen to those who are truly guilty before God? So he's trying to get these ladies to pay attention. That there's something worse than him carrying the cross. And here it is for you and for me. The great white throne judgment. If somebody stands before the great white throne judgment, here's what it says. I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, the book of life, and the dead was judged according to what had been done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead in it, death and hell spit up the dead that were in them, Hades. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And whose ever name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, connected to him, perishes. Don't give me the nice words. Don't be happy about your boy. Don't turn over a good leaf, new leaf. Oh, your gut religion. Oh, you're going to be a good boy from now on. Jesus says, are you kidding me? If this, look at me. <laughs> If this happens to me, I'm not even at the cross yet. But if this happens as a punishment for sin, and I'm the son of God, what will it be like for somebody who's actually a sinner on that great day? He says, you better think about that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that your word just is like smelling salts. It just wakes us up and, wow, this is real. There's a heaven, there's a hell, there's a Jesus, God, and his love. And Lord, just before we leave, thinking anything accusatory of you, we remember the pain and suffering on our behalf. Yes, warning us about judgment to come. That's going to be brutal. But, but brutalizing yourself so that nobody need to go through it. There's an escape route. A beautiful grace of God. But let us not forget that there is judgment pending on a Christ-rejecting world. But we have come to Christ, who is our Lamb, our payment. And you said anybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So thank you for 
It's the awesome grace of God, our refuge and our strength, our fortress. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. Then Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What good will it be for you if you gain the whole world yet lose your own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of God is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. All I can do is preach the gospel, pray for you, and hope that you respond. If you have something nice to say about the sermon or the church or the friendliness of the people or the moving music, thank you. But none of that matters if you're going to hell. And you will go to hell if you don't bow your knee and your will to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you the opportunity. In a crowd like this, I know there are a couple people. You know you don't know Christ. You don't know the lamb. The lamb's blood hasn't been applied to your account. Someone's going to have to pay. It'll be you. You or him. And this morning you get a choice once again to make it official. So with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, most of the room are already Christian, but we're praying for you right now. We're not just closing our eyes, we're praying. And if you'd like to become a Christian and accept the Lamb of God's payment on your behalf, open your heart to the Holy Spirit, it'll come and make you new. And just lift up your hand nice and high and say, I'd like to become a Christian today. I'm not going to be running anymore, doing my own thing, but I yield my life to Jesus Christ. You just raise up your hand and we'll say a prayer together. We'll start you off. I see that nice raised hand there, and there's one in the lobby as well. We always like to kind of model the sinner's prayer for you, so we're going to all repeat it after me. If you just mean it in your heart, the Lord said, I'll take you at your word and I'll save you. (laughs) So let's pray the sinner's prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. I've been running from you. I've been doing my own thing and getting in a lot of trouble that way. I've opened my heart now. I believe in you, that Jesus is Lord, and he died on the cross for my sins. I surrender. Take my life. It belongs to you now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me deny myself, pick up the cross, and follow. In Jesus' name, amen. And now, Father, for the Christians among us who struggle with 
the cross part of the deal. We just pray you'd renew our resolve to live biblically and not compromised culturally. So take you at your word that that's the only way. Some degree of sacrifice, some degree of pain, some degree of humiliation and awkwardness, the cross. Let us find that our friend and let us have more of the soaring than more of the dragging and misery. Help us to drag with delight so that we could soar with your freedom and do great things for you. In Jesus' name, amen. For the couple of you who did raise your hands, we've got Bibles, and we want to pray with you. Learn your name and all of that, so please come forward and introduce yourselves. Other than that, we'll see you Wednesday night or next Sunday. God bless you.